chapter 4, page 35. We left off there last time. Our memory verses for this section. John 1, 1 and 1, 14. Perfect verses, Shirley, for what you just talked about. I did try to say In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. So there's where we are. Pardon me? I tried to quote that to her. The more you quote it, the more you'll come to mind, and it, it's fine. It's, it's good. Okay. We looked at the God who became man on page 35, and we left off with, on page 36, the man who, the man who is God. In your workbook it says, even though Jesus took on the form of a man, He was still fully God. So important. Consider the following marks of deity attributed to Christ. And then they list the attributes here. These are specifically designated for the Lord Jesus. His sovereignty. He's eternal. He's unchanging. Hebrews 13.8 He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He's perfect holy, and true. He's truth. Specifically to the Lord, to Jesus. And let's look at these. It says, Christ demonstrated His power, that's His omnipotence, in His earthly ministry in the following ways. Let's turn to Matthew 8, 23-27. Surely if you could read that. Matthew 8, 23-27. We'll go right down the row. Luke four forty. Pam, Luke 4, 33, 36, Christy, and then John 11, 43, 44, Mark. Let's look at Jesus' ways in which he demonstrated his power. Matthew 20, Matthew 8, 23, 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said... Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Ever been in a windstorm? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ever been in a windstorm on water? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, just about. It's rather really pretty much. Jesus had power over the winds and the sea. He spoke and there was a calm. It wasn't that the water subsided and then the ripples hit the shore and then it calmed. There was an immediate calm. That's power. He has power over the winds and the sea. Luke 440. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus had power over what? Sickness and disease. Sickness and disease, good. No wonder everybody was coming to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Luke 4, 33, 36. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the demon had thrown him down in their midst. He came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. What did he have power over? Unclean spirits and demons. Unclean spirits and demons. Angelic beings. The Bible says, you believe there is one God. This is James 2.19. You believe there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They know who He is. And He has power over them. And as you and I read through the Gospels, and you'll see Jesus when He approaches someone who is demon-possessed. Sometimes you'll hear the demon say, Who are you, Son of God? No, we know who you are. So, because they knew he had power over them. One more. John 11, 43 to 44. 11, 43 to 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen fibers, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Who's the person they're talking about there who's being raised from the dead? Lazarus. Lazarus, okay. So, what does Jesus have power over? Death. Now we take that for granted, it seems, because we're used to hearing the Bible stories. That's pretty amazing. He'd have power over the winds and the sea and sickness and demons and death. Yeah. Can we say, okay, power over death. Can I use, uh, God has resur- resurrection power. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a very good way of saying that. He does have resurrection power. That's true power. Let's look this up together. Turn to Mark 2. Let's look together at verses 3 through 12. Mark chapter 2. I want to read this together, starting with verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes are sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, 
or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What additional authority did Jesus claim and exercise? From these verses. To forgive sins. Power to forgive sins. Which is actually easier? To forgive sins? Or to pick up the pallet and walk? In Jesus' world, it's easier to pick up the pallet and walk than to forgive sins. Why? Because he had to go pay for them. But to show who he was, he said, pick up your pallet and go home. He's exercising power in that man's physical body to connect. He's the one who can forgive sins. That's the point. He has the power over that. Who alone can forgive sin? God himself, Mark 2, 7. If Jesus has the authority to forgive sins and only God can forgive, who then is Jesus Christ? He's God. There you go, Shirley, for your conversation for today. Yeah. Where was the first place that when Paul was on his missionary journeys and he came to a city? What was the first place he would go to? Synagogue. He'd go to the synagogue. synagogue. Because that's where the Jewish people were. And he was always talking first to God's chosen people. And through the book of Acts, you'll see him go and talk to them. And in Acts 13, verses 38 and 39, he said this, Let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, and he's talking about Jesus, is the forgiveness of sins. That's what he says. He's, he's proving the point. And everyone who believes in him should be freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Because they were still following the Pentateuch and the Old Testament. So, this back to you, Eric. Scriptures, the authority... Jesus is the way, and he's the only one who can forgive sins because we have, a, we have a, a, a payment problem for our sin. Either we pay for it or the Lord Jesus pays for it. And that's why we are talking to people about to come to Christ so they don't have to pay for them. Because how do they pay for them? Go to hell for all eternity and they pay for them. So we're pointing them to the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who can forgive. Just even based on our reading here in Mark 2, 3 through 12. Great, great passage for that. Okay, questions on that one? Let's go to page 37. We saw the man who is God. We looked at his attributes and his power. Let's look at some of the titles of deity 
that he has in the man who is God. In Matthew one twenty three, we're done. Leave off with Rick. Philippians two ten to eleven. John, would that be good? Matthew one twenty three. Marlene, John eight fifty eight. Colossians two nine. Eric. And then Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Go. Okay. What's the title of deity? From that verse? Emmanuel. Good. God with us. You'll hear that name a lot during the Christmas season. Philippians 2, 10 to 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the Lord of God the Father, or to the glory of God the Father. What's the title of deity? It means sovereign. What's the word? Lord. Yeah, good. Good. That's the name God gave Jesus. As Lord. He's Lord. Classic verse, everyone. This is a classic verse. Marlene's going to read about God's deity. Jesus' deity. This is a great one to put to memory. John 8, 58. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. So his title is I am. Very good. That's a good one too, though. That, Before Abraham was born. Yeah. Jesus was Exactly. That always points when he says I am to his self-existence like he said to Moses. He's pointing out his eternality when he said that and other times when he said it. Great, great verse. Statements of deity. Let's look at these. Colossians 2. Now, by the way, this is a classic verse on Jesus' deity, Colossians 2.9. Whenever you're ready, Eric. For in him dwells, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. What's the statement of deity there? <clears throat> what dwells in Christ? The fullness of what? Deity. deity. The fullness of deity, the fullness of the Godhead. <coughs> he possesses divine attributes. He has a divine nature. Now let's back up to last week. When Jesus became a man, <coughs> did he lose his divine nature? No. How do we know that? Colossians 2 9. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He did not lose his divine nature. We won't read this particular set of verses in Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, but basically it's saying he is the creator in the brightness of his glory. He made the worlds. Jesus made the worlds. He's a creator. Title of deity. John 1, 1 to 14 there. In your, that's actually our memory verse. 
Jesus Christ is the Word, is God. Great, great verses on that. And let me give you another one to put to memory about Jesus' deity. is Titus 2.13. That says, Our blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is so clear. A statement that will help when talking with someone about the Lord's deity. Okay. Before we go any further, I want to look at a couple things about his person. Sometimes theologians will talk about Jesus' two natures and refer to as to the hypostatic union. Maybe you've heard that, the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. Hypostatic union. It basically refers to the dual natures of Christ. And they're not mingled together. They're separate. 100% God, 100% man. When Jesus became a man, He forever became 100% man. Because He was always fully God. Many people don't believe that. But what does the Bible say about that? We just saw the verses that will help with that. Remember we saw, what, what did Jesus do when He was tired? He slept. What did He do when He was hungry? He ate. How did He feel after He was on a journey? He was tired. Well, why did we go through that? He's a man. Human nature. And then what did we just go through? In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hypostatic union. Okay. I want to give you something to think about. Not in your notes. I want to talk a little bit about this. The peccability versus the impeccability of Christ. So the point of discussion is basically this. If you get this, you'll understand the, the discussion. And the question will be, why do I need to know this? to elevate our, our thinking of who the Lord Jesus is. He's a very unique individual. So here's the issue. Points of discussion. Jesus is God. How could He be divinely true if He could sin? Let me put it to you another way. Was Christ able to sin but didn't? Or was Christ not able to sin but didn't? Able but didn't. He was able to sin but didn't? That's peccability. This is impeccability. If Jesus could not sin, how could he be truly human? Is the question. Or if Jesus could sin, how could He be truly divine? Just kind of follow along. Because this is rich in doctrine about the hypostatic union and the person of, of Jesus. 
So let's look at the definition of it. Because Jesus was repeatedly tempted during his ministry, right? Remember? That temptation is the focus of the different views we're about ready to go over. So think about that. When he was tempted, that's where the focus is on these views. Is whether or not Christ could have sinned. Now, some Armenians believe that Christ could have sinned but did not. That's peccability. Christ could sin. Some Armenians do that. Basically, Armenian theology is it's man-centered. I make the choice. I chose God. Um, um, I, I obey His commands and so on and so forth. The focus is, the, is man. That would be some, not always, that view. Impeccability is Christ could not sin. That's generally not always where Calvinists would be. Those who believe, and quick definition, they believe the sovereignty of God is central, is the view of a Calvinist. If we can use that term for sake of discussion. And they believe that Christ could not, was not able to sin and didn't. You guys with me? Why is that important? Well, before we look why they're important, both views have this in common. Peccability, impeccability. Have this, this, these points in common. So they agree on these points. Jesus' temptations were real. Hebrews 4.15 Christ experienced struggle, Matthew 26. Christ, and he, Christ did not sin, point of agreement. Those are in common. Okay. You guys okay? You with me? Mm-hmm. kind of kind of sort of if anything it'll give you a chance to kind of think about it if you want because I want to elevate the person of Jesus in our minds because we have a view of him hopefully a biblical view but what is he really like okay this particular view able to sin and didn't is by far the minority view among theologians today. This is the minority view. And here's why. People who believe that, if Jesus could be tempted, then He could have sinned. So basically they're saying, Jesus has to be able to sin because then... The temptation isn't real. Right? If it's not, if he's not able to sin, then it's not real. 
So temptation implies the possibility of sin. See what I'm saying? If Jesus is not able to sin, then when He was tempted, that's only when it really becomes real for Him. Does the peccability come from that uh, idea that Christ might have been married? It sure could be an offshoot of that because from that flows a lot of different other theologies. Yeah. Christ was not able to sin and the temptation was not real and He can't sympathize with His people. See where it's logically going? How can He sympathize if, a, if, if He's not able to sin? Hmm. If Christ is impeccable, not able to sin and didn't, then His temptations were slight. He didn't take the full brunt of temptation. Let's look at this. <clears throat> Scripture argues by far for the impeccability of Christ. That position which we believe here as the elders, he was not able to sin. He was unable to sin. Why? Because he was God. And divine. Yeah. You know, just because an army can be attacked doesn't mean it can be conquered. Right? True. That same assumption applies to this. Tempt temptability does not imply susceptibility. And another one, Jesus was tried through his human nature as we are. But they're not always parallel to our own. He didn't have a sin nature for the temptation to take root. Sure, his temptations were not are not always parallel to ours. So he was tried through his human nature, but he didn't have a sin nature that that could take root. So he was so he could be tempted. He was tempted. But it's not the way we are tempted. Correct. <clears throat> well, I would say it is the way we are tempted, but we have a sin nature, so we act on the temptations from our desire to sin. Correct? That is correct. We we act on it, he didn't. He, yeah. But we're tempted in the same way. So in, we're, we're tempted in the same way, but because he doesn't have the sin nature, he doesn't act on it like we would. Correct. Let me write this down. And while you're writing, Marlene, this will tie into what we're talking about on point three. Christ's temptations were in every way like ours. 
except he was tempted from without. External temptations, not from within. When we are tested, that comes from an external situation, and then it starts to from within. And where we're sinful, that turns into temptation and then is acted upon sometimes. He was never tempted from within because of his because of his person. There you go. Okay, why did we go through that? Because Jesus is incredible. And he became a man and took on human form and a human nature. Why? To bring him down to one location, the cross, to die for our sins. Nobody else could do it. And since he's divine, he's the perfect sacrifice. And he showed his perfections through the, what the Bible records when he's talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the healing of people. And he never failed and never succumbed to it. Because he's God himself. John eight fifty eight, who he declared he was. The world doesn't seem that way. And we didn't seem that way either till somebody came and witnessed to us or we read the Bible and then the grace of God brought it to our thinking through the power of the Spirit and revealed that to us. So, yeah, that's good. Questions? Any of you heard of that before? Some of it before? Yeah, some of you had? Okay. I think it's one of those doctrines, and it's be under Christology. Remember we were talking about that last week? The doctrine of Christ, Christology. That would be in there. That's one of those that's sitting in there through the Scriptures as we read it to try to understand it and are exposed to it. It brings in a fuller meaning of who the Lord Jesus is so that we can not only give thanks because He saved us and paid for our sins, we can worship Him a little bit differently if that helps us in our worship. That's the idea. Not just to have knowledge. Okay. All right, guys. How you doing? Good? All right. Let's look at these quickly. Bottom of page 37, the Christ who is Savior. Uh, John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's a title, Lamb of God. John 6.35, the bread of life. Eric, I want to go back to you real quick. John 6 is a key passage in the Bible that sometimes people who believe Catholic doctrine will go. Because Jesus says in there, if you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will have everlasting life. That's the Mass. That's why the Mass is performed. 
that's a chapter six of the book of John. I can't think of the verse off the top of my head. It's in there. Okay, okay, he says it in there. Okay, good. But if you go down and read through the rest of that, when somebody quotes that, Jesus says, these things are spiritual. They're not literal. He's wanting us to take him in and believe in him who he says he is. That's taking in his person. So when he says, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread of life. He's the one who truly satisfies. And is truly the one who gives contentment. No, nothing else will. So that's why people do drugs. That's why they overeat. That's why they smoke. That's why they drink. That's why they overwork. That's why, they, whatever, fill in the blank. They're looking for something to fill that in Jesus. I'm the bread of life. He's the one who satisfies. Spiritually. And of course, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life as a title that describes his saving grace. Page 38. Let's keep moving. Uh, Jesus is not just a person of the past. He is the destined King of kings and Lord of Lords, 1 Timothy 6, 14, 15, who will someday reign over all the earth. What three things has Christ been given in Daniel 7, 14? Where are we here? Um, Chris, Kristen, could you get, please? Could you get Daniel 7, 14? And then Pam, Matthew 25, Shirley, Acts 1, 11, Mark, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. Let's look at these verses. What three things has Christ been given in Daniel 7, 14? Whenever you're ready, Christy. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Good. What three things do we see there? Dominion, glory, and kingdom. Good. Excellent. Dominion, glory, and kingdom. Been given to the Lord. Authority to rule. He's to be honored. That's glory. And kingdom. It's His domain and He's the monarch. He's the one who is going to rule the domain as kingdom. What did Jesus tell His followers in Matthew 25, 31 to 32? When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I love this passage. I what? hear that I think of Linus. Pardon me? I hear that I, I think of Linus on pe peanuts. You do? <laughs> That's funny. What, what did Jesus tell his followers there? He will judge. So he's going to come again, isn't he? Yeah. So you guys remember in our biblical timeline? Okay. We went through in September. 
So right now we're living in the church age. Jesus has ascended. Holy Spirit's come. We're in the church age. The next biblical event is the rapture of the church. When that happens, after that will come the second coming. The seven-year tribulation. Then the second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Right here in Matthew 25, He's going to judge. Jesus is going to have authority. And what's He going to do? He's going to separate what? Sheep. Goats. Who are alive. The goats are dismissed and they go to hell. The sheep... He brings with them into His millennial kingdom. It's called the judging of the nations. And then He rules for a thousand years. That's this. What's He telling them? I'm going to come in my glory and I'm going to separate the believers and unbelievers. That's what I'm going to do. That's the King who's coming to rule. When Christ ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, what were the apostles told? Acts 1.11. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. What were the apostles told? He will come again. He's coming back. Same way. Coming back. Describe the, the return, second coming, of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 10. Just go ahead. He said, And to grant relief, relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In framing fire, in inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He came, He comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled but among all who have believed because of testimony to you was believed. Good. Very good. How's that described? What'd you put down there for his second coming? Coming with his mighty angels? How about this? Take vengeance on unbelievers? And how's He going to take vengeance? Everlasting destruction? And how are the believers going to see Him, admire Him? That's coming. It's coming. That's the return of the King who's coming to rule. And we close our chapter basically with application. 
And those are really for you to fill in as you think it'll help help you. Well, that's the section here on chapter 4 is the person of Christ. And the next time we get together is the work of Christ and what He accomplished.